Because if I <clears throat> don't acknowledge it, that's not real. So <laughs> I think it'll be all right. Thank you. Complete this phrase for me. You have the right. <laughs> I thought you would. I thought you would. It is probably the most commonly way people, or most common known way to complete that phrase. It, um, it is a uh, legal uh, tool used by police officers and other authorities to alert you of your rights. It comes from a Supreme Court case in 1966 uh, in the state of Arizona. Uh, <clears throat> where someone uh, claimed that they were not alerted. So now every time that uh, authorities pull you over and they're about to um, detain you officially, they say you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. Am I the only one who knows this? Um, <laughs> some of you guys are, are like, yeah, you don't want to acknowledge that you've heard <laughs> You've heard, the, you've been read the Miranda rights, um, and uh, it's normally how people, you know, that's, that's what rolls off there. You have the right, you have the right to remain silent, probably because you've seen enough TV shows, uh, enough Law and Order, any Law and Order fans out there? Yes? No? Okay, fine, it's been on forever. SVU, I don't know how many other iterations of that particular show there are and, and you like, but... Um, it's probably the most common way known, but, but it describes this, uh, this tussle of power. You have the right to remain silent, or we will use anything you say against you. It's an expression, and the reason the Supreme Court case had to settle this is because it was a debate uh, about authority and of power. And when we use the word, when you hear the expression, the right, you normally clench your fist. I have the right to... Bear arms, there you go, uh, bear arms. Uh, I have the rights, I have rights. Uh, my daughter used to say that. Uh, sometime, I can't remember if it was fifth or sixth grade, she learned about women's rights and then all, that everything changed. <laughs> Anytime I would say something, she would say, we have rights. Uh, you know, and I would, okay. Uh, but that's normally how we uh, interpret and filter that expression, you have the right. But today I want to focus on that particular phrase because it comes from the book of John, chapter 1, but it means something, at least to me, totally different. If you would please open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. We're, we begun uh, just a short two-part series here in the book of John last week, and, and I share with you, if you're with us, if you were with us last week, that um, uh, I spent many, many, many months in this particular chapter because this is where all theology, theology students begin their study of, of the New Testament Greek language, usually in the book of John. And my professors made sure that I, um, uh, I knew and memorized John 1, 1, and, and I, I still remember it. Uh, I loved it. I was sharing with the rest of the church last Saturday. Uh, <clears throat> but I want us to read it both in English and, and who knows, maybe we'll do a little Greek today. So are you there, John 1, 1? Yes? Okay, let's read it together. Thank you. All right, we have someone enthusiastic back there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I love that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The reason this particular uh, uh, um, 
gospel is, is so unique and so well-loved, even amongst non-religious people and, and, and non, uh, uh, you know, denominational people that love Jesus is because it tells us something that the other three gospels do not. Unfortunately for us, we don't speak the original language, um, and so we rely on someone who has studied it and translated and even in the translation, at least in mine, which I have the NIV, uh, it expresses these thoughts in, in a few short words, uh, something that is quite difficult for us to comprehend. In the beginning, this was where we were last week, I'm just catching you up, in the beginning was the Word. Now, I, I, I told uh, First Service this story, and I may as well clue you in as well. My uh, senior year in college, um, <clears throat> I was a theology student at Pacific Union College, Go Pioneers, yes, all right. Um, and um, we uh, were invited to interview with all the conference presidents uh, nearing the end of your senior year. The idea is um, that the uh, conference presidents will come and they'll parade all the theology students and you get an interview and maybe they'll hire you. Uh, the thing was, I graduated in the 90s and uh, if you were paying attention to uh, church growth around the time, there were no jobs <laughs> in, in churches whatsoever. Nevertheless, they said all the conference presidents are coming to see you, so you, we're going to prepare you. So my professors, uh, John McVeigh and uh, Professor King, they all told us this is what you need to prepare for. So, um, you know, there are six, I believe, six conferences in the Pacific Union, uh, Southern California, Southeastern California, Central California, Northern California, there was Arizona, Hawaii, uh, and they all have their own organizations and group of pastors in the sister, sisterhood of churches, and they all have their own leadership, and these are the people that decide who works, who gets hired, etc. So all those people were going to come out to Pacific Union College to interview the graduates. And so they told us, you need to be prepared. We want, we want you to look good and make us look good. So they said, you need to learn certain things, make sure you know certain things. And specifically, they said, you need to be able to answer tough questions. What kind of interview is this? What are they going to ask you? They're going to ask you theological questions. So they prepped us. They said, you need to know <laughs> silly stuff that you wouldn't know. The, uh, uh, what's the difference between the pre-lapsarian and post-lapsarian nature of Christ? Anybody? Okay, good. Uh, nobody knows. No one seems to care, but they're going to ask you. And so oh, we practiced. And this person is going to ask you this, and this person is going to ask you that. This person is going to ask you about Ellen White. This person is going to ask you about women's ordination. So they prepped us. We had it all ready. And sure enough, the big day arrived, and uh, <laughs> uh, we had, uh, we had uh, I think it was like breakfast together in the big cafeteria. And afterwards, uh, one by one, we went into the different rooms in the department where in each, in each professor's office, there was a president, usually a vice president, a ministerial secretary, or three or four officials there in their suits. And, and then you would come in, you'd sit in the hot seat, and they would, you know, what is your name? Tell us about yourself. You know, it's like a, like a full-on interview, and they'd ask you all these questions. Well, as I was going through, sure enough, just like my professors had predicted, they asked those questions. What's your opinion on women's ordination? And I had to, you know, I had to do my thing. And what about the pre-lapse? And so I was, I'm ready. But then I landed on a Central California conference, and unbeknownst to me, they had just, just elected a new president. And I believe his name was Jerry Page, new president. Young guy, so he was playing it off the cuff. So after asking some this or that questions, he decided to, you know, go off script. 
And he turns to me and he says, he said the two weird questions. He says, what book are you reading right now? And I was like, love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And he was like, hmm. And tell me about your daily devotions. And I said, well, every morning at 6.30 a.m., I wake up before the sun. And then I break out my New Testament Greek Bible. Then I take a passage in the original Greek language, and I decipher it word for word, parsing every detail and element until I have soaked up new spiritual insights that I had not known before. And he was like, wow. They looked at each other like, we have no more questions. Anyway, I didn't get the job. Uh, <laughs> they weren't even hiring. <clears throat> what he didn't know was that 8 o'clock class was Greek for me every day. So I woke up not having done the homework the previous night, <laughs> just early enough to do the homework to turn in at 8 o'clock. He didn't know I was just doing my homework. Um, but nevertheless, <laughs> I remember from those days that my professor would give me a large sheet of paper, and on it was these words in, in Greek, uh, and our job from day one was to learn enough to be able to look at it and interpret it and figure some things out that we hadn't before. In case you've never seen that, never done that, I'm going to put some Greek on the a screen for you. Uh, this is kind of what it looks like. <clears throat> um, can anybody read that? Besides the theologians and theology students, there was a, like three last, last Saturday. I don't know if anybody else. Uh, <clears throat> and the reason you can't read it is because, uh, A, there are only a handful of letters in there that you will recognize. The rest probably look like Greek to you. Hence the expression, it's all Greek to me. Right. Um, what they teach us in, uh, at school is a handful of different things. One, they teach us that Greek alphabet. And the Greek alphabet is where most of the Latin languages derive their own letters. It just looks different. So what will look uh, to you like a scribble is actually a letter that you'll recognize once it's translated, if you will. And it derives from there. Some are obviously easy to figure out. There's an, you see an E at the beginning? Right? That's an E. Yeah, you see an A. The letter next to it looks like a P, but it's actually an R in Greek. See? And so when you, when you read the Greek, eventually you learn to decipher what the letters mean. But once you put the words together, you have to learn the meaning of words. But the most unique thing about the Greek language is if you look at it on the screen, you'll see a lot of little scribbles above, below. And um, what, what those things do is they change the nature of the word. So you have a root word, something uh, that might mean an action or, or, or a person or a noun. But then when you add those scribbles, it changes the intent of the word, which is what makes the Greek language fascinating and eventually beautiful to deal with. But at first, it's the worst, <laughs> especially at 8 a.m. <laughs> it's the worst. Uh, and, and those of us that have had the chance to study it, you know, we hated it at first. But it, when we got to that point where we could kind of figure it out a little bit, we've discovered that unfortunately for us as English speakers, when the words are translated, they lose a lot of their depth and their substance, which is why they teach us to try to go back in the original so we can pick a, a few more things. And so I want to share with you just a few of these words that are in John chapter 1 because, you know, these many years later, <laughs> I'm going back in the Greek, I have found some just 
um, God has even given me some, some great insights <laughs> uh, from, from wrestling here in the Greek. And so just catching up from last week, this is the John 1, chapter 1, verse 1, which I'll, the older students have to memorize. And it reads like this. N-R-K, hot logos, kai hot logos, en proston teon, kai teos, en hot logos. So the word you will recognize there is logos, which is I talked to you last week. The word means? Word, yeah. Logos, it means word. That's an L. <laughs> Looks like an upside down Y, but that's actually an L when you translate the letter. And, and what the author is doing here, he is sort of resetting our picture or our idea about Jesus. This is the Gospel of John, together with the other three, give us a full, complete picture, a more complete picture. But what you may not know is that the book of John was written decades later after the original three uh, Gospels. And the reason that is, I believe, is because God in his great wisdom called upon someone who was an eyewitness, but to give us a totally different perspective about the person of Jesus Christ. So if you read the Gospel of John, it starts very different. And it leads very different than the other three. And one of the major differences is in the other three, we have more of a historical account. Each one, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, giving their unique perspective. A lot of the overlap, a lot of the stories are, are the same, and even the words are exactly the same. But John tells us a different side of Jesus. And that different side of Jesus is highlighted in this first verse. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the word. I told you last week that those three words at the beginning, en, arc, ain, um, describe something that you and I can't really capture into words. Archain is the same root word that you get from archaeology, study of ancient things. But what it actually means, it's in the before. In the beginning is just what we come up with in English. But it describes something beyond your concept of time. In the, my, my translation would be in the before. In the before you can conceptualized time, the word was. He was already past. And if you read it, John goes on to describe the word as the only part of the Godhead that becomes human. In verse 14 we read last week, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh. So we have here in these short verses uh, the author trying to change our view or perspective of Jesus. Because the first three Gospels Help us to see a God who comes down and humanizes him. Important. But John is creating a counterbalance to that, where we embrace his humanity, but he helps us elevate his deity. You following me? Yes? Elevate his deity. So he says the word was God. He was with God. He always was. I love that. It means that the, that the gentle and kind and loving Jesus that humankind loves, you know that people love Jesus? But we just have trouble with his deity. You know that everyone around the world is fascinated by Jesus. Even Netflix can't stop making shows about Jesus. Am I right? Everyone is fascinated. Jesus is the most compelling character in human history. But what we struggle with is his deity his authority, his power. And here John says that's because he was before you can conceptualize anything being. In the beginning, he was. And the word was with God. That means together, with, but separate to. And the word was God. And he says, and through him, 
Verse 3, all things were made. I'm just going to keep reading. You can read it in the Greek if you're, if you're good like that. Okay. Uh, Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made, which is what I proposed to you last week. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So John is giving some great, fantastic words to the person of Jesus. He calls them the word, and then he calls them the light, and he calls them the life. Yes? Good, right? These words, word, light, and life. And he says, and this light that he brings shines even in the darkness. Darkness cannot overcome his light. Amen? Then he says, verse 6, I'm just going to read it with you. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to witness concerning this light so that everyone might believe. But he was not the light. We're talking about John the Baptist. He came only as a witness to the light because the true light gives light to everyone, that light was coming. That light was coming. Verse 10. Here we're going to focus here for today. And he was in the world, and even though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So what John is doing there, he's going all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God, same like Genesis, the same echo. And then he's weaving this path that's laid down by the old, entire Old Testament. That that light would come, that Jesus would come. Remember, we've studied this both in Nehemiah, <laughs> in Ezekiel, <laughs> in Daniel, in, 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 in Elijah, and Elijah. All of the Old Testament God dealing with us is this promise that God would send the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. And so what he does here in just a few verses, he goes back to the beginning and he says that light was promised to us and he was coming. And lo, in fact, he came. But the world did not recognize him. Fascinatingly here in verse 10, we have a descriptor, even though this was written thousands thousand years ago, of the same dilemma that affects or infects our current culture. Let me explain. Bible says that even though the world was made through him, it does not recognize him. And it's essentially the scenario that you and I live in. The world and everything in it belongs to God. He's the author and creator, the maker, John says. But the world refuses his authorship. We as a nation, when we began, we began under those precepts. That's why all our foundational language gives credit to the almighty creator, right? We believe that all people were created equal, right? And endowed by God, the Almighty, with certain inalienable rights. In God we trust. That's the birth. But currently, what we want to do is denounce his authorship because we want to be in charge of ourselves. We want the right to determine our own outcomes. Do you know that you live in a time in history where you are the most powerful that you have ever been? Now, some of you guys are like, yeah, I work out. I know it, yeah. And Matisse's like, yeah, I do CrossFit. I know, I know I'm powerful. I can bench. I can squat. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, you are currently the most powerful people on earth. I mean, especially if you're here in North America. Because <clears throat> with just a few clicks, with just a few swipes of your finger, you can move world economies. Right? I mean, it's fascinating to me, but I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. 
you can at any moment, even right now. In fact, some of you might be doing it. If you're doing it, put the phone away. But um, some of you right now could like have a whim that you want something that comes from the other side of the world. Hmm? And all you got to do is click on Amazon or Alibaba or some other site. And with just a few touches and swipes of your whimsy, hundreds of people will be mobilizing on the other side of the world to fabricate <laughs> and package and then ship and sail and swim and fly your product. And eventually, some poor guy is going to be running down your street, racing down in a gray van. Right? Am I right? And he will run to your front door, ding dong, drop the package, and race to fulfill somebody else's powerful wish. Right in this moment, right in this moment, Right in this moment, you have right in your pockets, every one of you, except maybe my two younger kids, every one of you have right the entire library of all the world's knowledge in your smartphone. Hmm? You have access to just about every piece of information, every book that's ever written, every product that's been created, every article, every, you're powerful. And with just a few words and comments, you can bring down, uh, you can bring down CEOs of powerful corporations. You can close down restaurants. Yes, you can have people arrested, removed from office with just a few clicks and a few swipes and a few well-chosen words. You are powerful, and that's the intoxicating nature of our culture. It wants us to believe that we are authors of our own lives. And it asks us, demands us to deny his authorship. You following me? It asks us to reject the idea that we were made through him. So the author says, and though the world was made through him, it does not recognize him. The outcome of that, the outcome of that is left up to our own devices. Even though we are powerful, we are also miserable. Amen? Now, I'll just be honest. Can we be honest right now? Yeah, can we be honest? Yeah, look. When I click proceed to checkout, you know, I feel good. And then when it says, ready to buy, you know that. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> You're like, should I? Should I? And, you know, you look over at your spouse and you say, I don't need your approval. Right? <laughs> and then it says, do you want it delivered on your prime delivery day next week? Or would you like it same day? That's same day. Who does next day shipping anymore? Nobody does. We live in San Diego. It's same day or nothing. I'm like, if it's not same day, why bother? Okay, okay, let's be honest with each other. And for a second, when I click, I think, I'm proud of myself. I made a decision. I tell myself, if we're just being honest, I tell myself, this will save me time. I don't have to go to the store. But I spend so much time because of countless choices. I waste more time choosing. But I made a decision. 
And there's this idea that when the package will arrive, I will be fulfilled. But you know what happens at my house? The package arrives, and it stays in its shipping <laughs> box or bag for a day because <laughs> I don't have time to deal with it right now. Anybody with me? Don't own up to it, but I know you're, I know you're the same. You order the next day, but you're not going to get to it for a couple of weeks. Why do we do that? For this false sense of power. We want to be in control. We kind of like the idea that someone is scurrying around the world and in our neighborhood to get us our stuff. It makes us believe that we can be in charge of our circumstances. And it makes us deny that we are someone else's workmanship. That we actually are created and formulated and under the direction of somebody else. The thing is, the thing is, this, this, this need for power is your right. It is your right. Let me read it to you. We're right there in, um, oh, we're just past verse 10. Let me get to the next one. Because I know some of you guys are reading in Greek. You're, uh, you're good like that. So there, you can follow along. <clears throat> verse 11 says, He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. This we know. This is what the Gospels are about. He comes to, to the Jewish nation, the descendants all the way from the tribe of Judah. He comes to them, but they reject him outright. Verse 12 here in the Greek, so I know that's how you're reading it, but here in the Greek says, But to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. To all who received him. And the word in the original is whoever. Whoever. It is a word that says basically it's for anyone. But not everyone receives him. See, the difference in his day was that some embraced him, they got him, they took him in, while others rejected him and pushed him out. And the same thing is true today. Jesus, the one who came then, is still here by virtue of those that he left behind. And so his invitation is still true today as it was then. So to all who receive him, those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. He gives the right. Now, the word included in the original language there is exousian in verse 12. I don't know if you can see it there. Autos exousian. That word, the right, uh, it might be better translated authority. But it isn't like power to control. It's more like power to choose. So what the Bible is saying here is that when Jesus comes, he makes it possible for us to have a legitimate choice to receive him or not to receive him. And when we receive him, then it is God's power that helps us become children of God. So there's two things happening here that I want you to understand. Because look at verse 13. It says, when we are children of God, we are children born not of natural descent, like I was from my father, not of human decision, I want to have kids, or a husband's will. Let's not talk about that. But born of God. Born of God. So what he's saying here in verse 12 is that Jesus makes it possible for you to exercise your right to choose him. But once you choose him, it is by his power that we become children of God. You know why I love that? I love that because, because Jesus makes it possible for me to be embraced before I deserve it or earn it or can make it so. The right comes from him, 
But when I exercise it, his power does the rest. So being born of God is not something that I can create or fabricate or need to. Being born of God is something that happens because of God. But what I have and you have is the right to choose him. You have the authority, the power of choice. The power of choice to become children. And I mentioned this in first service. The word in your translation, if you're reading King James, will say sons of God. But that's not what the original says. The original says children. It's not gender specific. See, God loves all his children, not just the boys. Thank you. Somebody say amen. (laughs) Children. It's an expression that John particularly uses because there's no other way for us to capture that. And to be frank, I didn't really understand it the same way before I had kids that I do now. Now that I have kids, maybe some of you can relate, the world's different. My experience of it is different. My heart has been expanded and challenged in ways I didn't never imagine possible before. And that's what he's trying to capture here. John is trying to say, God sees you as his child. But you have the right to choose whether you will be his child. Eventually, John begins to use the expression adopted, adopted. And I'm just going to confess to you that I am adopted. But even though I was legally adopted at one point, it took me a long time to exercise my right to believe I was adopted. For many years, although I had been legally adopted, I lived my adopted parents, I still reserved the right of feeling like a son. It wasn't for a long time when I finally came to my senses and understood that I was being embraced like a son. But you will never be a son or a daughter until you choose to be a son or a daughter. We have the right to become children of God. Beautiful part about that is, as long as we exercise that right, God does the rest. And this is how, verse 14, and the word, kai hot logos, and the word became flesh. And I love this, if you can see it in the original language right there. Uh, 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 <clears throat> and the word became flesh and made his living among us. But the original uh, language, <clears throat> the actual word for, for dwelling among us um, is, is, is called uh, eskenosin, which actually means booths or tents. So it says the, world be- the word became flesh and he pitched his tent among us, <laughs> tabernacled with us, which is where the expression comes from. And, and he, he set up his booth next to us. And the reason I like that is because if you've ever been camping with somebody, <laughs> you get to see them and know them in a whole different way. <laughs> right? Am I right? If you ever shared a tent with somebody, you learn things about them that maybe you didn't wish you had learned. But, but you see them. And that's essentially what, what, what Jesus is doing here. This is how we became, this is how we are becoming his children he pitched his tent next to us. He came to live among us, means he came to reveal the completeness of himself and came to know our completeness. I love that. That's the tabernacle component. The word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen him, and we testify. A couple of more things here that, that I, I want to share with you from the original language. Let's keep reading. In verse 14, <clears throat> we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and of truth. 
That's why John cried out in verse 15, this is the one I spoke to you when I said he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 16, important here. Out of, the, out of his fullness, we have all received grace. The original language, it means that he is, being, he is full and it's, it's spilling over. And the reason I love that is because the thing that fascinates people about Jesus is that fullness. How does he love the unlovable? How does he talk to people? Because he can't help himself. That's still true. But when you and I sometimes think about Jesus, we only think about our shortcomings between them. But I want you to know that he is full of grace and full of truth. There is no shortage of grace in him. That's why he tabernacles with us. He lives in my tent, sees my mess, and still loves me. But he also has truth for me. Here's the contradiction. His grace is exemplified by his humanity, but his truth is claimed by his deity. He has both the grace to love you, but he also has the authority to tell you the truth. Full of grace and full of truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, we're going to end here. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who himself is God in his closest relationship with him, but he has made him known. You know, when I read this in the original language here, the, 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 the made him known is, 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 you'll see it at the very end there. Well, let me put it, because you're reading in Greek, I know. In verse 18, it's, it's, uh, it's the unfolding. The word is uh, exegesto, it's unfolding. He is um, unpacking unpackaging. He is opening and revealing God. That's what Jesus does. This is how he takes the right that we have and makes it a reality. He unfolds God so you might see him and know him and love him better and be transformed by him. So what Jesus does is he reveals fold by fold the fullness of God's grace and of his truth. And as I pondered and wrestled with this, it came to my mind this connection that I, I hadn't seen before. The word, life, light, and breath. Hear me out. Right now, right this very moment, inside your chest, there is this muscle that unexplainably beats on its own. And it's pumping and moving and pumping. We don't know how it gets started. We only know when it stops. And its fuel is oxygen. Oxygen. Free, available throughout all of creation. Every time you breathe it in, your heart beats and it gives you life. See, the Bible tells us that in the beginning, God breathed his breath on us to start life. So when you woke up this morning, when your heart beat this morning, it's because his breath is still giving you life. See, with every breath, with every suck of air that you take, God is revealing himself to you. The word, the word, the, the expression of God, his breath in Jesus Christ is still revealing itself to you. His light his life, it's what comes from him. That's what gives us the right to become his children. 
Jesus himself said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, because every breath comes from God himself. I love the idea that as I take every breath, I'm breathing him in. But I'm also challenged by the idea that every breath that I exhale and every word that follows that breath is an expression of what I have taken in. So verse 18 tells us that he unfolds them for us and that as we breathe him in, we are revealing him. Jesus knows him and he is revealing him to us. And no one else was chosen for this task. I want you to see it <laughs> except Jesus the Christ. Now we'll use the word the Christ, but what the word actually means is anointed, chosen. Jesus means he saves. So Jesus Christ means anointed to save, chosen to save. What we have in Jesus Christ is not only the originator of our lives, but the rescuer of the mess that we made. He is the one who saves us, even though he created us first. How does he save us? Breath by breath, word by word, moment by moment. Every heartbeat is an expression of his generosity with us. I'm convicted this week of how precious life is. Just yesterday, I attended a funeral of one of my college classmates just a year or two older than me, young guy, beautiful family, but died suddenly. And there at his funeral, uh, uh, many, many people gathered. They spoke about the impact that he had on their lives. He was a musical guy. He wrote beautiful music. But it struck me how much in his time he had shared of himself with people. And, and I was filled with two things, inspiration and a little bit of regret. I began to think about the missed opportunities that I've had, missed moments where I had words to share and I just kept them to myself. You with me? Times when you think, oh, I could have, I should have. God has given me that I hold back. And what I'm challenging you and challenging myself is to understand the preciousness of every breath. If it's one thing I learned in 2019, is that this life is precious. Every day is a gift. This moment is a gift. And God gives it and gives it. His generosity is over because he is full of grace. He can't help himself. Yet I have the right to either embrace that generosity or reject it. You have the right. But today you can choose. And every day you must choose whether you allow him to call you daughter call you son, whether you allow him to change you, to become his children. Power comes from him, but the choice must be yours, as it is mine. And right now, I choose him, Jesus, Messiah, anointed, chosen to save me. That's why I sing. That's why I love to praise. I can't do him justice. I can't really honor him. My words are nothing compared to his words. But as long as I have breath, I know that it comes from him. So I return it to him. That's why I sing. That's why I praise. 
That's why I continue to hope and believe in the power of his word. The word became flesh and now lives among us in the way you and I share the word. Shall we sing his name, Jesus Messiah? Stand with us and let's praise him, our one and only anointed Savior.